Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. This is Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. And today I am joined by Rob Cook from Patterson Cook. Rob, how are you today? I'm wonderful. Thanks, Brian. Oh, that's that's great. And we're recording this during the pandemic, and hopefully you're holding up as well as could be expected. Yeah, it's it's been a a tough time really for for companies and personal lives, families. But thankfully, we're getting hopefully to the end of this stuff. Yeah, and it, it's different for your company because your company does a lot of the physical side of the material testing. So a lot of people can work remotely, but you've got a, people that are got to be in the lab making the, the experiments and the tests and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. We. We were pleased that we could keep our laboratory here in, in Golden, Colorado open right through the pandemic. So, so we never shut our laboratory down at all. And uh, we were still able to get samples coming in and being delivered and uh, we kept that service going. So it was, it was good. So yeah, you know, Colorado considered mining to be an essential service. And so, yeah, we were allowed to keep that facility running while most of our other staff were working from home. Yeah, it's interesting how that's worked uh, through the world. In Nevada also, it was an essential service, largely because the casinos shut down, so the state needed some tax revenue from somewhere. <laughs> and I know in Latin America, it was, it was different depending on where you went. But Rob, Rob is there any, uh, anything that we've learned during this pandemic that business-wise you, you can do differently than you did pre-pandemic? Well, I, I think yeah, a lot of companies reported very high productivities during the pandemic, which is sort of surprisingly and a bit counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. Um, our group had its best year ever during 2020, mm. which is mm. surprising. And I, I think part of that was, you know, we were we were able to continue with very strong relationships that we built before. Yeah. Out for the virtual, the remote work, you know, both you know, within the company and with our clients. And I think that was a key element. Um, you know, I'm really feeling now that I need to go and speak to some of my clients. I need to see them in person and, you know, to continue, you know, strengthening those relationships. I feel like we sort of got to the end of what can be done virtually in a way. But I, I do think I think there's going to be a permanent change in the way people work. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more work from home, and you know there's there's obviously some good sides to that. I I I have some concern that the um, mentoring of young engineers is, is is going to be somewhat impacted by that. And uh, so for young people coming to the profession. If they don't have the day-to-day access access to experienced engineers, I think it's going to going to um, slow down their progression of their careers. 
Yeah, I agree with you, and I've heard that same statement before. So yeah, we need to pay a special attention to the young engineers as they come up in the profession. And we've seen that, you know, when we brought people back, we brought our young guys back first, gals back. They they were they were some of them really needed it, and um, some of the older guys like me also came back so that we could sort of close that gap spend time with them yeah yeah rob tell us a little bit about yourself your background your education um well i i i grew up in in southern africa i started my schooling in Namibia. it was it was called southwest africa at that, that time and then my my father was a um exploration geologist for rio tinto and um, so he was working at the you know, Rossi uranium mine when it was an exploration and um, then, then he moved to, to Johannesburg. Um, that's where I, I finished my school was in Johannesburg. And I was very fortunate then to go to university in Cape Town. Um, yeah, it's, it's the University of Cape Town. It's a, um, a, a really world-class institution. And I was very lucky with the education that I got there. Um, very, the whole principles are very much modeled on the British system so the engineering degree is, is really focused on understanding quite deeply the principles of physics etc behind things and um, so it was um, I was very grateful for that and I enjoyed my time at university very much so I stayed on and did a, a master's degree and I still hadn't had enough so I stayed on and did a PhD so I ended up spending 10 years full-time at university. So that was a, a very, very privileged time to have. Yeah. I don't think very many people get to spend that, that amount of time just learning. And right, right. It was, it was, it was good. Um, so yeah, that, that was my education. And um, yeah, very pleased. Then. But I have to say that, um, you know, that was maybe the formal education. And I still continue to learn something every day. It's oh, absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. It's amazing how much we used to learn. Yeah. 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 You just have to keep your eyes and your mind open. So in, in uh, your at University of Cape Town, is that where you met Angus Patterson? Yeah, we, we ended up, we, we actually, we did some, both did a civil engineering degree and we both started at the same time. So we were registered in 1981. And um, yeah, Angus was a local Cape Town um, guy. I, I was from Johannesburg, and we ended up in sort of social, different social groups. The the first two or three years of engineering were really mixed up um, with all the engineering groups. So we, the civil engineers were not um, you know, that close together. And yeah, we did a lot of you know, chemistry, physics, maths with all the other people as well. So Angus and I, we really only got to know each other probably in our third and fourth years when the civil engineers started to get together a bit closer. And we did our, um, our undergraduate um, research project with the same professor. And um, so that's, that's when Angus and I started to get to know each other. And, and then, you know, when I was thinking of staying on for a master's, I was talking to Angus and he made the decision to stay on as well. And then we stayed on with that same professor you know, doing a master's degree in fluid mechanics and then we both went on to a different professor to do our PhD so we pretty much had a parallel track 
we'll, we'll go yeah. back to that. Yeah. yeah. At, uh, so I, I just have to ask you, you've been very Americanized by saying that you were in Johannesburg. And back in those days, nobody would claim to be from Johannesburg. Yeah. So uh, I've got to ask you which suburb you were in. In, in, in North Cliff. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know that part of Joburg then? A little bit, yeah. No, I, I uh, spent my time in Ravonia and Peterval and, and uh, Paulshoff. Yeah. Uh, but th- that's where I live. But of course, I traveled around quite a bit as well. So how did you come into association with uh, Angus? Well, yeah, the, the mining industry and its and its cycles. Um, so we we'd actually both ended up doing PhDs that were very correlated with Backfill, and they were both funded by the Chamber of Mines that was active in South Africa at, at that time. And so we this was the late 80s, so we started to look look around for jobs, and and the mining industry was mm. back toilet yeah. again. Yeah. And um, so the, I, I really couldn't find anything in mining that was attractive to me. So I decided to stay on at the university and I, I ran the research group for, for a while. Angus got a job with a civil engineering consultancy in Cape Town. And um, I don't know I, whether he's doing some housing developments or you know laying out roads or something. <laughs> right, right. We met up and he was pretty bored with what he was doing and I, I was, um, you know, wanting to do something different than staying at, staying at the university. And um, we said, well, why don't we try and, you know, set up a company that does what, what we want to do? And um, so that was the genesis of it. We, we had an idea to start our company and um, we, Angus actually had a, a friend at, at De Beers and we had some discussions with them and, and, and we got a contract with them to develop some um, design software um, for high solids concentration tailings pipelines. And so we started our company based on that. And uh, within a few months, we got a contract for a, um, a, a about a, a six kilometer uh, slurry pipeline in Cape Town at a Kalen mining operation. Hmm. So, so those two jobs gave us uh, you know, quite a good load of work for the first yeah. three, three, four years of starting out. So we yeah. were extremely fortunate with that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, very fortunate. And, and uh, for how many years were you specifically only located in South or Southern Africa? That was quite a long time. Um, yeah. So, but probably within the first two years, so we started formally in 91, but by 93, 94, through a contact I had with Anglo-American, I was doing a lot of backfill work in Brazil. Hmm. So I, I, was, I was starting to spend um, you know, several months a year working on, on, on projects there. Um, and we also, you know, were working um, elsewhere in Southern Africa. You know, at that time, the South African mining industry was 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 very strong. Um, you know, I, I worked um, with Anglo-American, you know, Bilby Potash in, in the UK, and and so so we were able to follow our South African clients to the international operations, and we we started, um, you know, doing a lot of international work quite early. 
although we were uh, only had a, a single office space in Cape Town. Yeah. Um, and then um, Andrew Vietti joined us um, in the probably in the late 90s, and then we got an office going in Johannesburg and laboratory facility you know, around dewatering. Yeah. And then our first sort of expansion was to Santiago, Chile. Hmm. We established an office there in 2005. So, you know, it took, it took quite a long time, you know, from sort of getting started in 91 to 2005 before we, we got an, a presence out of South Africa. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and at that time, you're doing mostly pumping and piping of slurry and, and probably paste tailings as well. Yeah, a lot, a lot of our work was yeah, on, on high high concentration tailings yeah. at various times. Um, uh, we, yeah, we did some longer distance slurry pipeline work as well, and, and we were doing underground mine backfill distribution systems. So, mm. yeah, up to that point, we were really a you know rheology pipeline focused company. Andrew yeah. bringing in the um, you know the thickness side, he mm-hmm. started to to get us to 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 broaden our base into into. Yeah, more of the process engineering, which you know, is pretty much all I'm involved with now. And I do some pipeline work, but it's not it's not the majority of the work that I'm, I'm, I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you and I first uh, got to know each other at a PACE conference in South Africa that was probably in the early 2000s. It was in the Planesburg uh, Game Park. And it was a really pretty small conference, maybe maybe 50 people at the most, but that's probably being generous. And there was people like Ted Lord and Andy Faree, uh, you and Angus were there, and I was really impressed by the quality of the professions that you and Angus gave. It, it uh, kind of blew me away how the, how professional the content of your presentations were oh, thank you yeah yeah there was a it was a very intimate conference it was actually it was quite a special one because in the mornings you go on a game drive and go and see some, some elephants cheetahs and whatever and then yeah. back into the conference it was yeah uh, and those conferences with a small group of people 50 or so are, are actually wonderful because you get to know people quite well um, and it's, you know, especially when it's an off-site one like that on a game reserve, it was yeah. A yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I gave a talk at that conference, which was not especially uh, memorable, but I I was introduced as being Brian Boger, and I did, I didn't ever correct whoever it was that introduced me. I just went to my first slide and people. <laughs> there was a there was a practitioner named David Boger, I should uh, point out to the listeners. Yeah. So there was that's where the confusion came from. Yeah, we still we still use those Boger slant tests. So you should stick to the name Boger and oh, maybe so maybe I'll have that as a middle name. <laughs> <laughs> So, Rob, what are you what are you uh, working on mostly now? What type of work, and, and maybe maybe not just your USA practice, but globally, what what are you seeing as the big markets right now for your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm 
Well, yeah, I'll start with my work, perhaps. Um, yeah. Because I've, I've really got very involved in, um, in the, you know, the global tailing standards and, and, you know, what it means for mining companies and how we can do better at tailings. Mm. And uh, um, yeah, I've worked in tailing since the beginning of my career. Right. In different aspects. You know, I'm not in the geotechnical side, obviously, more on the process side. But the, um, yeah, the, the, the failures that we had, the three big failures. Yeah really were um, a shock to our industry and, and um, I wanted to do what I can to try and make this a situation like that not happen again in our industry so so I've, I've been fortunate to get some good assignments um, you know I've been working um, with some big companies at a strategic level on on um, on how they can do better with their tailings at, at their various international operations, and that's that's been very satisfying work, and especially sort of identifying that it doesn't have to be the same as it's always been. That there's opportunities to use the technology yeah. Yeah. with cost-effective ways to to um, have better tailings systems. So, so that's what, what a lot of my work has has been focused on. Um, Personally, also, I've, I've, over the last four or five years, I've, uh, it's been an interesting development is, is that I'm on several um, tailings review boards now, huh. which, you know, would, not long ago would have been unheard of. Um, you know, they were dominated by geotechnical engineers, but um, yeah. some of the mining companies now are seeing that there is, there, there is a, a broader aspect and looking at maybe at the tailings facilities more holistically. So. And that work has, you know, has been interesting for me uh, as well as to, to have a, a look at, at these facilities from a completely different perspective to, to a design engineer's perspective. So I've, I've enjoyed that. Um, yeah, our company is, is, you know, we've done some big, big pipeline projects. You know, we did a 180 kilometer, 36 inch pipeline in Morocco, hmm. transporting phosphate. Um, so so our, our pipeline business is, is good and there's, there's a lot going on. We've been working on some major pipelines in Brazil. Yeah. But, so that's a, that we see a lot of activity there. And, and the other part of our business that, that is really very busy is, is underground mine backfill. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so we we're doing we're doing a lot of that, and and that to me that's satisfying because that's 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 part of the tailings picture really, and it's putting you know some of your tailings underground, which is better than storing them on surface. So it's, it seems to be part of the solution, you know, where where, where that's possible. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's it's like any little bit helps. So even if you can only put 10% or 20 or 30% of your tailings back underground, it certainly helps to reduce the volume that's that's uh, deposited on surface. So that's uh, that's always a good thing to bring into your program. So based on what you've seen in the past and, and what you're doing now, what what kind of future trends do you see for your work and for tailings management in general? Well, yeah, there's been a lot on the governance side and I think, I think that, that has to be addressed because, you know, the for these operations over the life of the facility to maintain the discipline, operational discipline is, is, is the key challenge in my view. 
Um, you know, from, from the work that I do, I, I think the reducing the amount of water that we put into and store in our tanning facilities is, is critical. So whatever we yeah. do to reduce that amount of water, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's going to, to be better. But, you know, filter tailings is, is, is sort of what has been the buzzword for a few years now. And, and, and I think we will yeah. see many more applications. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it, it remains quite expensive to do. Yeah. Uh, we see there are advance, advances in technology, no doubt. There's, there's, there's um, you know, people are making bigger pressure filters um, yep. you know, that are going to be a reality. The companies that are looking at at uh, you know continuous pressure filtration, for instance, those those sort of rethinking it, not not just making the same machine bigger, but a, a different machine that might do it more effectively. Mm. There's a lot of interesting work being done in in in, um, in you know chemical amendments of tailings to improve. Yeah, the yeah. So those are going to become more cost effective. So incrementally, we're getting closer to cost effectively having reduced water content tailings. Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm personally, I'm interested in filter tailings because it does seem to be a good solution. And um, I, I want to, you know, work more closely with a number of geotechnical engineers to, to close that gap between what the process engineers can do and what the geotechnical engineers really need. And so I think there's going to be some more developments in, in that, that area as well. Yeah. I think some climates, like in, in the Atacama Desert, that there's there's a lot of solar energy available, and can and maybe some of the dewatering, the final dewatering, can be done uh, using environmental drying. So, so there, there's yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, very good point. It uh, was interesting that you're on these uh, independent technical review boards. I'm just getting involved with three of them this year, and we haven't started anything yet. But I'm really afraid that we have mostly geotechnical engineers where we might need some hydrology and hydraulics people, some groundwater people, some geology people. You know, it really depends on the complexity of the projects that you're working on. You don't have to have eight different people, but it's really nice to have people from diverse backgrounds. You, it's fine to have a couple of different geotechnical engineers because not all geotechnical engineers are um, from the same mold. We've, we've all got different expertises and backgrounds and uh, trainings, but it, I think it's really good to have somebody from outside of our, our uh, soil mechanics world to try to bring a different sort of balance to the, to the entire process. So the, I'm really encouraged that you're being brought into some of those yeah, yeah. It's you know, I was having a discussion with Laurie Remeyer a few weeks ago, and he, he made a really good point: is, is that tailings really starts with mine design. Because once you decide to go, whether it's an open pit or underground mine, you and, and you know, how much of the you know, resource you actually have process, that really dictates. The, you know, that that is one of the big decisions that dictates how many how many tons of tailings are going to be produced, and and, and so. These, this whole tailings thing really needs to be looked at completely holistically with the mine plan as well. So I, I think we're going to see more people and, and more mining companies looking at it with that, that sort of perspective. You know, we, we're working on, on um, 
containing facilities that were deposited a hundred years ago and still mm. remain a liability for their owners. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so, you know, with some more foresight, you know, with today's modern minds, we we uh, more care, I think we can take big steps to reduce those future liabilities. So so yeah, I, I think there's a there's a lot to be done still in entailings in the whole framework of, of how we tackle the problem. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's a very good point. And it's funny because a hundred years ago we didn't have the pumping capacity to make these enormous tailings facilities that are dozens and hundreds of meters high. So in a way, the tailings facilities from a hundred years ago, at least from a geotechnical perspective, were safer because you could only build them. 40 or 50 feet high before the pumps couldn't any longer lift that high but yeah now we can we can pump infinitely high if, if there was a certain situation for that to occur but yeah we uh the, the physics are changing and, and our understanding of the physics needs to keep up with that yeah, yeah, because there's some big, really big tailings facilities now. It's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rob, we've covered a lot of ground today, and I appreciate that. Is there any key takeaways that you would like to share with us, or pearls of wisdom? I, I think. Um, I mean, one thing that I've uh, been fortunate with uh, is. And I found that people are incredibly generous. And, and uh, if you explain to people, you know, what you're trying to do, it's amazing how much they will help you. And, and you're actually an example of that. You know, I, I hmm. briefly met you at Billingsburg. I mean, right. didn't really spend a lot of time together. No, no. But when I moved to the U.S. in 2007, you, you know, you you were in based in Elko and I was in Denver at that time. But when you came through to Denver, you know, most times you'd give me a shot and we'd go, go have a, look, a lunch together or something. And 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 even just that checking in, uh, you know, with somebody's immigrated to a new country and is trying to start a new business was invaluable. But, you know, just, just to, to have that sort of you know, confirmation that the, what I was trying to do was right. And obviously you gave me some guidance on that as well. But I've, I've, you know, I found that, um, you know, across the board, you know, and especially so in America, you know, Americans are, in, are very generous people, are very open people. And, you know, one example on that is, is in 2008, I, I thought we should present a tailings course and I went to the Colorado School of Mines and said, I thought this would be a good idea. And they just said, sure, go ahead, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, I basically just walked up the street and asked them the question and they agreed to it. And yep. we'd, we'd been presenting a tailings course at the Colorado School of Mines for uh, I think 2008-2009. My memory's going to be able to the rest of it. We're not doing it this year because of COVID. But, mm -hmm. but those are the, the things that I think if you ask people, um, sometimes quite surprising how generous and, and helpful they, they, they will be. Uh, yeah, Barbara Phyllis, obviously, for my piece of she was yeah. doing a great deal and us getting established here as well. So, yeah, uh, so that's uh, maybe if, if I've learned anything is 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 um, people are good. Right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And it was 
of course, my pleasure to uh, give you any little bit of help that I could because I'd been in the opposite situation as a as a displaced American in South Africa. So having a South African in America seemed like a natural place for me to pop my head in and say hi to you and make make sure your day was okay every once in a while. Yeah, that was greatly appreciated. Thanks. <laughs> you bet. Rob, I know you've got a day job that you need to get back to, so I will let you go, but I appreciate your time. And one of the reasons I have this podcast is to make me a little bit smarter each time. And I appreciate you making me a little bit smarter today. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Yeah, and hopefully we can catch up sometime soon. Sure. All right. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.